I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find thrilling original content spanning everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Every review helps the show. Thank you. In our last episode, Lee approached Lottie about getting a loan from Anthony, a known loan shark. Despite Lottie's pleas for Lee to steer clear of Anthony, Lee felt that borrowing money from Anthony was better than going on welfare and taking a handout. And now, without further ado, the next episode of The Seal of Solomon by Charles and Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. made a left turn onto North Ridge Road, passing Sunnydale Heights, a private neighborhood surrounded by a long brick wall that culminated in a fancy filigree wrought iron gate with a small guard station just outside. He and his wife Caroline had looked at a few houses in the complex four years before when he first decided to move his family out of the city. It hadn't taken long for them to decide that a planned community with its rules and regulations, private security force, and symmetrical living spaces wasn't where they wanted to live. The blocks of uniform expensive homes reminded him of an upscale version of the row houses that had been built for returning war veterans in the 40s. Instead, he and Caroline had found a comfortable turn-of-the-century two-story house, which had just been renovated some ten miles further down North Ridge Road. They had bought the large house, intent on having at least two more children. Caroline hadn't wanted Beth to grow up as an only child as she had. As he reached the long, lazy, sloping curve, he could just glimpse a two-foot-by-two-foot black asphalt patch near the side of the road. The patch was darker than the road that surrounded it. He passed that spot at least twice a day, and each time he was reminded how the simple act of riding a bike had turned his bright future with Caroline suddenly so tragic. The patch covered a pothole that had lain unnoticed all that winter under the slush and snow. Caroline had been much too busy glancing over her shoulder to check on Beth to see it coming. She hadn't swerved her bike and had hit the pothole head-on. Caroline had suddenly flown over the handlebars and crashed onto the pavement, the twisted metal frame falling on top of her. She had never regained consciousness. 
That patch had been there for three years, but every day for those three years he had swerved around it, and every day that he swerved around it he remembered her, and everything about her, and how lonely it was without her. What had started out as a conscious act of avoidance was now an obsessive act, a way of holding on to his memories of her. He had never laid flowers at the scene of the accident, as was sometimes done to remind passers-by of a tragedy that had taken place. He didn't have to. That cold black patch was his reminder. He would never forget her, never forget what had happened that day. He paid homage in his own way. He visualized her beautiful face, her captivating smile, her seductive body. He knew that if he had mentioned the way he felt to a few of his friends, they would probably look at him strangely, frown, and say, For best sake, and yours, let her go. She's been gone three years. It's Beth that you have to think about now, and yourself. It's time for you to start meeting new people. Get on with your life. And he knew that they would be right, so he hadn't told anyone how he felt. He knew he was obsessing about Caroline, but he couldn't stop himself. He had no reason to try until today. This was the first day that he had allowed himself to face the compulsiveness of his own memories. Why had he suddenly forced himself to question what he'd been doing for three years? As he turned the wheel to place his car more squarely in his own lane, a new memory came to mind. He couldn't forget the little girl that had been brought in so badly wounded, that little girl who had been struck down by a bullet, whose small body he had worked feverishly to repair. It was Holly Atherton's face he saw now. She was about the same age as his daughter. She looked so innocent, lying there on the operating table. How could anyone do such a thing to another human being, especially a child? He thought he had given up trying to answer that question years ago. Consciously, he couldn't understand why he had been so affected by the little girl's injury, but somewhere in the deepest part of his psyche, he knew it wasn't the little girl who had forced her way into his memories alongside those of Caroline's. It wasn't the little girl who had interrupted his mental ceremony of remembrance. When he'd first met her, shaken her hand, stared deeply into her eyes, he had found himself almost flirting with Holly's mother, although it hadn't been a conscious act. Over the years since Caroline's death, he had been on dates with other women, but he had found himself unable to form any type of emotional attachment to any of them. He had simply dated them once or twice, and now and then slept over, but there had never really been any emotional commitment on his part. So why had he been drawn so inexplicably to Holly's mother? Part of him knew, but it frightened him. How could he be so strongly attracted to someone he had just met and knew so little about? Why would he entertain the thought of allowing someone he barely knew to vie with the memories he had of Caroline? to betray her memory. He was torn by the feelings he'd kept for his beloved Caroline and these new feelings that had sprung from somewhere deep inside of him. He saw his red brick house just ahead on the right-hand side of the road. He knew Mrs. Kemper, the rather heavy-set, middle-aged live-in housekeeper, would already have helped Beth finish her schoolwork and have their dinner ready for them. And he knew that Beth would be waiting to tell him about her day. They had grown closer over the three years since Caroline's death. 
Sometimes Beth would say things or do things that reminded him of Caroline, and in that instant she seemed much older than her nine years. He realized that a part of Caroline survived in Beth. Lottie finished putting the last set of curls in the young woman's hair. Her right forearm was tired and was starting to ache. Her right hand was getting stiff and she was finding it hard to manipulate the hot curling irons. She was becoming concerned that she might touch the customer's scalp accidentally with it. It made her all the more thankful that this was her last customer of the day. Now she could go to the Palm Gardens where it was cooler, and she could have Rudy, the bartender, make her a couple of his special fruit daiquiris, and she could nibble on some of their spicy buffalo wings. But it wasn't really the cool atmosphere of the Palm Gardens or its spicy buffalo wings that had been occupying her mind. It was the fact that she didn't know if Lee borrowed the money from Anthony. She sighed quietly. She certainly hoped not. She really hadn't had a chance to speak with Lee since she had introduced her to Anthony. Curling pomade and cigarette smoke filled the air. The salon was quite warm at the end of the day, despite the fact that Rose had gotten the repairman in to look at the old Frigidaire. Although the unit had been pumping out cool air since early morning, the problem was that the eight beautician stations each had a small gas burner to heat the curling irons and pressing combs, and these burners raised the temperature inside the salon. Lottie combed out the woman's hair and sprayed it lightly with hairspray. Her customer handed her $35 and made an appointment for the same time the following Saturday. After the woman had gone, Lottie stood in her booth, placed her hands in the small of her back, and stretched. B, one of the older beauticians, looked at her and remarked, Mm-mm-mm. I know why you're so tired, Lottie. You were out last night till all hours, partying with those young men, weren't you? Rose, overhearing the conversation, said, If you had a body like hers, you'd be out partying with those young men yourself. Lottie, how small is your waist? B asked. Lottie had always known that B admired her figure and the smallness of her waist. Each time the older woman commented on it, Lottie was flattered, but she tried to hide it from her co-workers. B, you know how small my waist is. I've told you a hundred times. Well then, tell me a hundred and one times. I swear, I think it must have gotten smaller. Are you dieting or something? Sylvia, one of the other beauticians, said, Have you ever thought about becoming a model, Lottie? You certainly have the looks and the figure for it. You better take advantage of them now while you're still young. When I was younger, I had a pretty good figure, but look at me now. I'm dumpy, lumpy, and broad. They all laughed. Lottie smiled and picked up the scissors and combs from her work area and started neatly arranging them. As she began wiping off her curling irons and pressing combs, she thought about what Sylvia had said, and she thought about her son Michael whom she hadn't seen in over a year. She had to leave home two years after he was born so she could get an adequate paying job to support him and her mother. Michael's father, Jesse, had been a member of the same church she had belonged to all her life. Jesse was the one who had started and ended her modeling career. He had been the one who had taken pictures at the church fashion show and later sent shots of her off to a modeling agency. He was the one who got her portfolio together for the agency interview, and he had even driven her to the appointment. 
In retrospect, she realized she should have been suspicious of the attention and time he was taking with her, but she had assumed that he was acting as chaperone because of his friendship with her mother and his position as deacon in the church. And she had started modeling, at least for a short period of time, and enjoyed it until Jesse had gotten her over to his apartment on the pretense of showing her a letter from a well-known New York modeling agency that had been sent to her in care of him. That had been six years ago. She could still remember his apartment. The door was painted black. The number 4F was painted in gold. Now every time she thought about that number and letter, a saying the boys used from her old neighborhood came to mind. Find him, feel him, fuck him, and forget him. But what Jesse did to her was worse. He raped her, swore that he was sorry for his actions, begged her not to tell anyone, and then left town. He didn't even know he had a son, and she doubted if he would have cared. When she found out that she was pregnant and had to tell her mother about what had happened, her mother told her absolutely no abortion. Her mother had said that she would raise the baby. You're young and you shouldn't be burdened down with a responsibility like this. It wasn't any of your doing. You have a chance to make something of your life, her mother had told her. But she loved Michael the moment she laid eyes on him, and she knew that he wasn't her mother's responsibility. He was hers. A year later, she had tried modeling again, but it wasn't the same. She was thankful she had someone like her mother to take care of Michael while she went to beautician school. Unable to find a decent paying job as a beautician in her small town that paid enough to take care of Michael, she had moved to the city, rented the apartment on Camden Street, and started working for Rose. She found it hard to believe that she had been here four years, working and sending money home to support Michael. She hadn't borrowed the money from Anthony because of her brother. She was an only child. The money had been for Michael. He had been the one who had gotten sick and needed to be hospitalized. Was that your last customer, Lottie? Rose asked. Suddenly, having to set aside her own thoughts, Lottie turned and said, Yes, and I'm glad of it. What are you going to do tonight? Sylvia asked. I'm going over to Palm Gardens, eat some of their buffalo wings, drink a few daiquiris, and head home. See, if I did something like that, I'd be as big as a house— these young people and their extravagant appetites, B said. I've got to stop chatting with you people. You're stopping me from cleaning up my station. I've got to get out of here, Lottie said with a laugh. She started sweeping up the hair on the floor while the other beauticians finished up the last four customers of the day. And now a preview of our next episode. While working at the beauty parlor, Lottie is shocked when Anthony and his bodyguard unexpectedly show up and coerce her into accompanying them to one of Anthony's hangouts. What's going on? What is Anthony up to? Join our Patreon site and become a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, you'll receive early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic content such as ghost notes and commentaries by the writers of Serial Dreadful's original series, exclusive access to Season 2 of each series as those episodes are released, 
as well as access to the entire back catalog of all episodes in our various series as our podcast goes forward. All this for less than a cup of coffee from you-know-who. Face it, folks, you're not going to get a better deal for original content anywhere. So go ahead and click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.